legislation excludes a specific clause about rape, which the government said it will include in another piece of legislation. The majority of lawmakers supported the bill, though Indonesia's conservative party rejected it. Russian President Vladimir Putin said today that negotiations and peace talks with Ukraine have reached a dead end and insisted that military operations are going as planned and would continue until its goals are fulfilled. Putin said it's unclear. Invasion continues. The World Bank is preparing to deliver $1.5 billion in aid to Ukraine is 77 degrees and partly cloudy. In New York City, it's 71 degrees and sunny. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Amar Evering. The time now was one minute past 5 p.m. Stay tuned for the independent <laughs> news hour. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org. I N D Y P E N D E N T dot O R G. We've got another fantastic show in store for you here. Uh, I will be joined a little later by my co host, Amber Gagare, here in New York. We had a mass shooting at the 36th Street subway station in Sunset Park that injured 17 people, including 10 by gunfire. The The gunman is still on the loose, according to the NYPD. Uh, so we'll, of course, be following those developments. And Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin was indicted on federal corruption charges as well today. Uh, so a lot going on. And we'll be talking more about crime in the streets and crime in the executive suites in a few moments when we're joined by our First guest, uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos of Queens. She's going to walk us through the $220 billion annual New York State budget that was approved at the end of last week, which also included a rollback of bail reform laws uh, that were passed only three years ago. Later in the show, we'll be joined by India Walton. Uh, She electrified the left last year during her run for mayor of Buffalo when she almost became the first socialist to lead a major American city in 60 years. She's now very involved in the movement to push 
President Joe Biden to cancel $1.7 trillion in student loan debt for 45 million Americans. So we're excited to have her join us in a little while. And we'll also hear uh, from uh, housing activists uh, at, at the Ridgewood Tenant Union. Uh, a lot's been going on out there recently. And also we have special guests all the way from Barcelona, Spain, from the a housing movement there that's done a lot of uh, exciting uh, organizing over the last 13 years, and uh, they're uh, visiting New York this week, so we're excited to have them join us later in the show. Uh, but first, we turn to Albany, where legislators approved a $220 billion state budget at the end of last week. The measure also included a rollback of bail law reforms passed in 2019 and also included a $600 million public subsidy for building a new stadium for the Buffalo Bills football team. Joining us now to talk about all this and more is State Senator Jessica Ramos. She's in her second term representing Senate District 13, which encompasses several working-class immigrant communities in western Queens, including Woodside, Jackson Heights, Elmhurst, and Corona. Senator Ramos, welcome back to WBAI Radio. Hey, John, it's so good to hear you. Thank you so much for having me again. You bet. It's always great to have you join us. Uh, um, Before we go into the... Uh, the, the talking about the state budget, uh, I- any initial reaction to today's uh, shooting in, in Sunset Park? Um, and, and- yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm completely heartbroken, as I'm sure you are, and every New Yorker today that feels unsafe on the subway. I think ultimately the lesson here that a lot of us are learning is that we can't put all the burden of public safety on our police officers. It doesn't make sense. They're not there necessarily at the moment in time when these situations take place. And the only way that we can prevent these acts of terrorism and uh, wrongdoing and, and, and harm that others might cause is really taking care of the mental illness that is plaguing our state because we've ignored it after we've come out of this pandemic. We know that keeping people housed, providing them with health care, providing them with good union jobs and education, all of these things are what contributes to our public safety. I mean, we've never had more police officers on the ground than ever before. And yet we're still seeing these these acts, these these terrible situations happen. So I think we, we have to get a lot more serious about public safety. Right. Well, th- thank you for sharing that. Yeah, we certainly can't um, ha- have a, a, a cop in every corner. Um, even if that was what we wanted to spend our money on. And, and so speaking of that, uh, of course, we're really excited to have you join us today to kind of walk us through this mammoth uh, a budget deal that was reached uh, finally uh, last week in Albany. Uh, you're one of 63 state senators there. You had to, they had to get the state Senate and the state assembly on board and, of course, the governor. Uh, can you tell? just give us a sense of what you see as the good, the bad, and the ugly in this deal and why you ultimately voted the way you did well let's start i guess by talking about the big ugly right i so the big ugly and a lot of people don't know this because I, I i do have to share john and i think it's important to teach new yorkers everybody keeps asking me well did you vote against the budget and the answer is both yes and no right the budget is made up of a handful of bills and all of the different topics that are important in our lives like healthcare and education and um, transportation and things like that get put into different bills. This year, what we call the big ugly is because a lot of the last minute uh, deals, backroom deals ended up in this bill. That's why we call it the big ugly. 
And this year, it was what we call the ELFA bill. So it's Education, Labor, and Family Assistance. It's where we got a raw deal for CUNY. Not enough, not the CUNY New Deal that we were looking for. We didn't get the child care expansion that we were fighting for either. That is so critical for our economy to get back up and running, not only to help parents get back on their feet, but also for child care workers to finally make an F and live in wage. Seriously. And this is where, of course, those bail reform rollbacks were snuck in um, and in addition to a lot of other things. So I couldn't vote for that bill because it's just not right. Um, but I did vote for the others. I think we've been very critical about the stadium that was put in last minute. And um, and also the $345 million uh, slush fund that was created for Long Island senators last minute. That's coincidentally the same amount of money we were fighting for for coverage for all since we couldn't get the New York Health Act done. I mean, it's not like we have we just came out of a ginormous, uh, you know, global pandemic or anything. And I'm not even sure we're out of it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so um, y- so you were one of only five Democratic state senators, I understand, to, uh, to vote against the big ugly. And that's in a, a caucus of 43 uh, Democratic senators. Uh, why do you why do you think uh, you were in such a distinct minority and why so many of your Democratic oh. colleagues were uh, willing to go along with this? And, and that's one big sigh. Um <laughs> One big is, is courage um, that hard to come by? Well, I, I look, I, I don't know. I think people, I would hope that people are as responsive to the realities of their district as possible. I know when I talk to my constituents, when I talk to my neighbors, they're, they're worried about us not being able to keep people housed. They're worried about us not having a sufficient response to a healthcare calamity that we just went through. And that's why, you know, my big speech on the floor was all about the New York Health, Cat, the health Act, actually, mm-hmm. um, despite it not being my bill. It's just, it's crazy to think, you know, we lost 50,000 New Yorkers. We had a whole nursing home scandal and we still can't get that right. We still can't get the fair pay for home care workers that we were looking for. We got a paltry $3 over the course of two years and you know i just you know there's a lot more work to do um but you know those last minute monkey wrenches that the governor threw in negotiations that were already of course you know very very clandestine right and and kind of happening in the cloak of the night doesn't help um so so here we are in a place where we have to double down on our fight i mean uh do do you think I mean, some of your colleagues were just uh, uh, afraid of being tarnished as soft on crime if they didn't join in with this. Even I don't though, want because I mean, there was them. a lot of opposition to rolling back bail reform and discovery reform when Eric Adams marched up yeah. to Albany in February. Well, so what changed? Well, there's- there's a ton of misinformation out there about bail reform, unfortunately. It's like everybody likes numbers until they don't su- actually support uh, their, you know, th- their narrative. Um, and so, um, and so, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were making a data-based, information-driven decision here. And unfortunately, the narrative that has been painted in the media um, has far surpassed public, you know, the narrative of, of that's actually supported by the numbers. So I, I think that did not help us in certain districts. 
Um, and um, a lot of people felt that we had to do something. And the unfortunate reality is that now we've set bail in essence for a lot of crimes of poverty. So, you know, we're actually perpetuating uh, poverty in that if somebody is, for example, stealing, um, you know, some medicine, you know, Dimetap or something from Rite Aid, well, then somehow they're going to be held, um, you know, at Rikers if they can't post bail. And you know what that means? That means that they might lose their apartment. That means that they might lose their job. That means that they might lose custody of their children. That perpetuates these cycles that, that just keep our families, our families down. And so I, I, I don't think it was the right thing to do. Um, and I'm disappointed that others don't see that. Right. And Governor Kathy Hochul, to my mind, has a, a long history now of essentially throwing people of color under the bus when it serves her political calculations. I mean, she did this as the Erie County clerk in 2007 when she came out in a very demagogic way against driver's licenses for undocumented people and really kind of helped uh, stall the momentum for that that was building in New York. It, it stalled, ultimately held that back for over a decade. And, and now and now we see what she's uh, doing uh, with the, with the bail, the bail reform. Uh your your thoughts on that? I mean, I know it sounds well, kind of well, harsh, but well, if, if, a, if say, a white yeah, politician keeps on throwing a black and brown people under the bus, it 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 doesn't speak well of them. But then, well, let me say a few things. First off, I want I do want to mention how offended I was that I had to learn about her ten point bail reform plan in the New York Post instead of being briefed as a legislature as as, as a member of the legislature. Um, in a separate way, which would have been the professional thing to do. One. Two, I, I do think that, you know, and, and I actually held a press conference to this effect a few days before we voted for the budget, saying that, you know, a, a lot of the consequences that will that we will have to bear out of this budget actually falls on women of color, on black women, on, on you know, uh, on Latina women and women who look like me. Whereas if we're not the ones being um, accused and, and, and arrested for crimes of poverty, well, then we are the ones who are left to be single mothers. And if you happen to work in the home care or child care industry or in the caring economy in any way, shape or form, well, then you're not making a living wage and you're having trouble accessing these services yourself. And if you're undocumented, well, heck, you might actually have even more trouble being able to access health care, never mind everything else. And so, again, you know, it, it's very hard to justify this budget when it's not actually responsive to the challenges that were presented to us, um, you know, during the pandemic. It's just not a budget that responds to the moment. And that that has been really frustrating for me. Right. And we actually uh, have a clip here from uh, Kathy Hochul uh, last week uh, when the when the deal went down, uh, talking in particular about her criminal justice uh, initiatives. Protecting victims of domestic violence and hate crimes will close, lo will close loopholes in the discovery law that led to the unnecessary dismissal of too many cases. We're going to allow police to make arrests for hate crimes. We are now for the first time going to allow judges to set bail for gun charges that were previously subject only to release. Also adding factors that a judge must consider. As I mentioned, closing some problematic loopholes on raise the age and discovery making Kendra's law more effective, all in the interest of making a safer and more just New York. 
State Senator Jessica Ramos, anything to add to that? I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I, it's just, it's just really troublesome, you know, to hear that perspective. I, I think that a lot of what she talked about that is good, of course, you know, money for domestic violence, money for um, victims of hate crimes was achieved, but was re- really very small. Well, let me tell you, with redistricting in November, I'm now gaining Little Manila in Woodside as part of our district. And I, you know, we were fighting for a lot of AAPI funding in order to address a lot of the anti-Asian hate crimes that have been taking place. And all we got was $10 million, $10 million for Asian community across the state, which is diverse, which has, you know, a myriad of uh, issues that we need to help with, you know, even for the transgender community. It's historic that we, we managed to win a budget line item, but $1 million doesn't begin to address the disparity in that in every $100 that we allocate for the LGBTQ community, actually only four cents goes towards our transgender neighbors. It's unjust. It is unequal. It does not speak to the wellness that we need to uh, provide for our neighbors. So I'm a little, you know, this is, this is, there was so much, but, but there's money out there and especially with a budget that had a surplus, such a much better way to actually figure out how we can invest in our communities and not throw away money on a stadium, on a slush fund and other things. Yeah. That stadium deal kills me. I mean, it's not only $600 million lifted out of our pockets and handed to this multi-billionaire family in, in Buffalo that owns the football team, but John, John, this guy made became, made his money, became a millionaire, fracking gas. Okay, it's you know, this man harmed our planet, and now because I don't think people realize that we're giving money away to someone who has already done us harm, and it's just it, it's unfathomable to me that at a time when one in five New Yorkers is starving. You know, they go to sleep uh, hungry um, every night and, and, you know, we see the effects of homelessness in our streets and everything, but this is where we're putting our money. And I'm a good union girl. I love good union jobs. And I know that the project is going to be built union and I believe it's going to be operated union, but you know what? It's just, it's, this is not the moment for those type of initiatives. This is the moment to feed our people and house our people. Yeah, no, uh, public works boondoggles are not the best way to build the union movement in my book. But uh, um, and just to say about this stadium, I mean, they have a, a functioning stadium as it is, and this new stadium is going to have 20,000 fewer seats, and but it's going to be loaded with luxury boxes for the corporate class to use, which is what the team owners want. And uh, as a bit of a sports ball fan uh, here, and I know you're a big uh, Mets fan, but uh, um, the – the, I mean, the Buffalo Bills will only play eight games a year there and maybe a playoff game every once in a while. Uh, but most of their fans will never be able to afford to even enter this stadium. Uh, it, it's the, the most classist, uh, gross uh, project I could imagine. I, I well, I mean, let, let, let's also not forget, you know, the, the biggest criticism of the NFL based on their lack of diversity and their own uh, controversies with regard to how they choose coaches and the like. So if we're, we're not even upholding a, a reputable, a, you know, organization here. And, and you know, I, I actually get a few questions 
so even from some of my constituents who happen to be football fans who ask me, you know, uh, what would I, what would I have done, you know, when City Field was built? Would I have supported that subsidy? And I, I don't think so. I don't think I could have. I would have been able to justify it if, if the, the situation of our economy was this one. Right, and you're 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 a longtime Mets fan. And- Born and raised, baby. <laughs> Let's go Mets. Opening day on Friday. And Born we're, to we're, suffer, we're doing but, pretty you good. Know. Well, Pete Alonso could uh, improve his defense a little bit. That would make me very happy. But uh, we've been doing pretty well this week. We'll see uh, what our home opener looks like this Friday. Right on. Well, um, before we have to go here, I mean, one other part of the, the, the state budget uh, talks that really kills me is, I mean, there's been reporting in the Albany Times Union, which covers uh, the state capitol very closely, uh, where they got a, a access oh, they're fantastic. To, yeah, access to a cache of uh, emails from Kathy Hochul's office, very explicitly showing uh, major donors uh, essentially being uh, escorted or directed from top campaign staffers to top advisors in her executive office, uh, where they uh, would go on, go about seeking the, the favors they had come for. Uh, your thoughts on, on that and the continuing pay-to-play culture in Albany? That, I mean, I, is- I mean uh, new, new boss, same as the old boss? Look, no, it, it's not fair to say that it's the same, right? Obviously, we can't ignore the fact that the previous governor sexually harassed several women and has not been held accountable for his actions. And, 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 and that makes, that's what I think makes the bar so low. And for a long time, you know, I've, I've always, you know, held that what I've liked about Kathy Hochul is that she's actually out there. She, she, she sees our city. She sees our state. She talks to people. She actually likes other human beings, but apparently not enough to actually see their dignity and see their humanity and what their needs are right now. And that's been very frustrating for me, especially to see how she hasn't even really truly been able to evolve on her position with undocumented immigrants, right? I mean, all must be said, the former governor, I don't like to say his name, I don't like to remember him at all, but he did help me pass the excluded workers fund in the past, um, in in the past uh, uh, budget. And so, you know, this year, unfortunately, we weren't able we this year unfortunately we weren't able to um see help for not only the excluded no more bill uh, which is a permanent solution to the lack of unemployment insurance for undocumented people but also coverage for all which was the bare minimum that we can do in light of not being able to get the new york health act passed i mean we again we had a huge pandemic and our response to the health crisis was next to nil Right. And uh, we, ha- we have to go here in a moment. Uh, last question, I uh, can't avoid it, given the today's news, the indictment of Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin on uh, five felony counts, uh, federal corruption charges. Uh, uh, he was one uh, Kathy Hochul's point person, uh, I understand, recently in helping uh, roll back uh, the bail reforms uh, in Albany. And now he's been indicted on five felony charges himself. What are we to make of this? Well, I think that any wrongdoing should, of course, be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I think we should have a zero tolerance for corruption in our state. Our laws are very clear. The laws have been very clear for me as a senator. So I don't think that that should be very different for any of our um, for any of our colleagues. And so I expect 
the feds and law enforcement to, to do everything they can to, to ensure that every public servant is being held accountable for their actions. Um, and I think that's what we'll see in a trial. I should, he be released, he pled- uh, should he be released on bail, given that he's accused of uh, filching far more money than uh, somebody stealing a box well, of diapers? I believe, I believe he posted bail today, if I read the news correctly. Okay. Um, so, so you know, I, I don't, I don't believe there should be cash bail. Personally, I do believe in remand based on what you know the the crime or the wrongdoing uh, was at hand. And obviously, this is a nonviolent one. So, making sure that he returns to trial um, seems like of of greater of greater probability than than a lot of other things. So, I mean, and, and let's remember, John, that that's what bail's about, right? Bail is about people returning to court um, for trial and being held accountable for their actions. So, I mean, the money is just not not really uh, responsive to what the consequences are. I mean, if he ends up having to pay restitution of some sort, or you know, actually, it's something we'll have to see as the weeks and months roll on, especially now that we're within two months of, of the Democratic primary. Right. Uh, quite, uh, quite a primary that's uh, shaping up to be. Well, Jessica Ramos, uh, state senator from Well, John, Queens. actually, sorry, let me interrupt you, because actually there's breaking news that uh, Lieutenant Governor Benjamin has just resigned his post. Wow. OK, um, folks, you heard it here first on WBAI 99.5 FM uh, from our right. uh, star reporter, Jessica Ramos. <laughs> Very amateur uh, reporter here. But yes, um, so I, I suppose we'll we'll see how how the next few weeks roll up. Yes, uh, uh, I, I don't know uh, quite where to go after that, but um, uh, Jessica <laughs> Ramos, uh, we we've got uh, India Walton waiting in the wings. Uh, so we get we got a, a. Oh, please say hi to her. She's so dynamic. Yeah, she's fantastic. So if she if you're listening, India, I'm so happy you know you're on next, and it was good to see you this weekend. Great. Well, again, thank you for joining us. Always a uh, a light in in the in the darkness uh, that sometimes uh, cloaks Albany. Uh, Jessica Ramos, uh, state senator from Queens. Thank Look you so to much, you John. Back in the future. Absolutely, anytime. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Okay, so we will be back uh, after this short break, and uh, uh, we'll have uh, India Walton with us to talk about debt relation. See the little brown girl She's as old as me She looks just like chocolate Oh, mommy, can't you see We are both in first grade She sits next to me took care of her mom when she skinned her knee she sang a song so pretty on the jungle gym 
That was Turning Point by Nina Simone. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, and I'm now joined by co-host, Amba Gagarian. Hi, yes, I'm Amba Gagarian. Thanks, everybody, for listening to WBAI 99.5. And I was stuck in some traffic. I think uh, today's been very organic. We just found out that the lieutenant governor stepped down and I'm 15 minutes late because uh, there was a shooting this morning, which is really unfortunate. So uh, my heart goes out to all my fellow New Yorkers, and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, the subways are snarled um, across the city right now. So I'm glad that snarls you everything. <laughs> but, um, you know, a, a small problem compared to what people went through this morning uh, at the 36th Street subway station mm-hmm. in Sunset Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we're... Uh, we're having a technical difficulty with getting India Walton on the air. Um, and uh, um, we're going to try to follow up on that. Uh, we we have our, our third segment guests are uh, already with us. Uh, so um, maybe we'll, I think we'll uh, uh, go to them uh, initially. So uh, we were planning to talk a little later in the I show. I think actually it looks like India is ready to join us. I just oh, got fantastic. From, well, we've been... from our sound engineer. So okay. um, looks like India coming in any moment. Um, so we're super excited to have India join us. Um, as many of you know, she ran for mayor of Buffalo last year, really electrified people across the country, uh, uh, came out of nowhere and nearly toppled a, a five-term incumbent, uh, would have been the first socialist elected as a, major city mayor in 60 years. Now she's doing other great work uh, around student loan debt. Uh, India, are you, are you with us? Hey, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. It's so great to have you join us great. on uh, WBAI. So it's good to be uh, here. Thank you for having me. Y- you bet. Uh, so uh, just for starters, uh, l- last week, uh, you had the uh, protests uh, at the Department of Education in, in Washington, D.C., demanding cancellation of uh, student loan debts for 45 million Americans, totaling over $1.7 trillion. The following day, uh, President Biden announced that he was postponing or, 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 or pushing back the moratorium on student loan debt payments to August 31st. Uh, your thoughts on on his action and, and what it signifies and whether you consider it a win or, or something else. Yeah, I think that it signifies that organizing works. 
um, there have been widespread calls for full cancellation. So while I think that it's a small win and will provide relief for millions of working-class Americans who continue to struggle with payments um, and, you know, the economic hardship of the pandemic, it hasn't gone far enough. So we're going to continue to fight and continue to push until we, we get what we're asking for. And, and how did you become involved in this uh, this issue and this campaign? You know, I think that there were um, a lot of really kind people who wanted to see me use a platform that was created as a result of my run um, to continue to be able to do good work. And Roots Action is one of those organizations, and they know that I had personally struggled with student loan payments and um, thought that it would be a good way for me to get involved. So invited me to come lead Roots Action campaign to cancel student debt. Right. And can you uh, talk about the the racial and gender justice element of of this uh, situation with student loan debt? Absolutely. Um, We know the data tells us and multiple studies have confirmed that black women over more student debt um, and are, are paying far more in interest, most of our interest payments. Um, most of our payments are going to interest and very little to principal. Um, and that that cancellation is really a matter of economic, racial, and gender justice. Um, I think about myself personally, and, and having my debt canceled means that I can think about paying for college for my own children, that I can think about purchasing a home, um, and, and that the income that comes into my house are be going to put toward things that are a lot more um, generative is the word that I'm looking for, generative than, than paying off um, interest on federal student loans. Right, and, and we're going to go to um, a, a clip here, India, of, of the, the – um, the president, uh, you know, e- explaining that the the loans will will not be um, made to be paid for a little while. But um, sorry, we're having a technical difficulty here for a second. I'm just trying to figure out which which clip we're going to. Let's go to um, Biden sought one and uh, hear the president speaking about loan forgiveness. This should be him on the campaign trail. younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. No, no. I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. Because here's the deal, guys. We decided we were going to change the world. And we did. We did. We finished the civil rights movement to the first stage. The women's movement came to be. Okay, so that um, was Biden, not on the campaign trail, but in 2017, speaking after uh, coming out with his book, um, speaking uh, in reference to how the younger generation um, should suck it up. Your your response, India, on that and the, the distinction between younger generation and the boomers who paid very little for college. Um. I think that the younger generation, which I don't necessarily consider myself a part of, I'll be 40 soon, we are saying give us a break, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I think that for, first of all, there are people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s that are still repaying student loans, people whose Social Security checks are being garnished as a result. So this is not only a young person's issue, um, 
but I believe that in the greatest nation in the world, we all deserve an education, and it shouldn't strap people with thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt in order to get there. Um, our National Brain Trust is one of the best things that we have going, and we should be making investments to make sure that our, our people can be educated at little or no cost. Right. And, and uh, a lot of the, the debt movement uh, traces back uh, to uh, as far back as uh, Occupy Wall Street and uh, anthropologist uh, named David Graeber, who wrote a best-selling book on the uh, the history of debt over the past 5,000 years and how debt is uh, more of a social construct than anything else. And if, if we can uh, create it, we can also abolish it. Uh, I think we have a clip here mm-hmm. of uh, David elaborating a little bit on that and, and, and kind of how uh, government deficits are also uh, wielded in a, a dishonest uh, manner. The real world, how debt is distributed has very little to do with fiscal responsibility. It's mainly about power. The wealthy have a million ways to wriggle out of debt. The debt always gets passed off on those least able to pay. So when the government runs a deficit, creditors, rich people again, end up holding a lot of government bonds, which pay quite low rates of interest. The government taxes you to pay it off. All of us have to pay our share. All that's really happening when it runs a surplus is that same government takes that same debt and effectively transfers it directly to you as higher mortgage debt, payday loans, and so on, at much higher rates of interest somehow taxes never seem to go down. Everyone really knows this. It's just a taboo to say it. Because what it really means is, if the government balances its books, it makes it almost impossible for you to balance yours. Thoughts, uh, India Walton, on uh, debt as a power relation more than a moral obligation? I think that is um, is spot on, and I think that the shame and the stigma from carrying debt, whether that be student debt, medical debt, or consumer debt, um, has created a subclass of people where we're meant to be ashamed. I mean, I, you know, I, I think of, of the way I was disparaged in the media for having parking tickets, right? And while a parking ticket is not um, a student loan, it is a debt that I owe to the city of Buffalo for using a public street um, that public money goes to maintaining, right? Um, and there were people who actually said that they wouldn't vote for me because I had unpaid parking tickets. And mm. the, the shame that's attached to being a poor person, a working class person, and a person who has debt is something that we have to have more conversations about, which is why I'm, I'm really proud of the work that happens in the Debt Collective and in spaces like, um, you know, when Ruth Action and the Debt Collective work together, because it really helps to take away some of that stigma. I think that it was during that rally that it was the first time that I even said out of my mouth how much student debt I was carrying. Um, and it shouldn't be something that we are meant to be ashamed of. It should be something that is abolished um, and that working class folks should come together and demand um, that, you know, we get these, these heavy burdens off of us so that we can also enjoy and, and realize what has been sold to us as the American dream. And, and go into a little bit more detail of how transformative that could look, India, um, abolishing debt first off for students, but then maybe in other sectors as well. You know, I'm just I'm thinking about folks who are delaying retirement. 
I'm thinking about people who are unable to purchase homes, who have delayed starting families. Um, and a lot of people are citing their, their debt burden as a reason for those things. And to know that during the pandemic they can be on pause basically in perpetuity, it's been two years, um, why not cancel it? If we're looking to stimulate the economy, if we're looking for a just recovery from the pandemic, the one thing that will help immediately in, improve American purchasing and consumer power, help the help housing rebound, help people find secure housing is debt cancellation, is wide and broad um, debt cancellation. But knowing that the president has executive authority to cancel student debt today is a really good place to start. Right. And it's the same authority that he used to push back the moratorium is the same authority he has to cancel the whole shebang. And he acts like he doesn't have the power. It's the same authority. But I mean, <laughs> and, uh, again, you know, I, I think that is not only about his unwillingness to do it, but it's also about structures of power and who our elected officials often find themselves accountable to. And while he's saying young people should suck it up, young people put him in office, you know, not the not the refinancers that he's being held um, accountable to, but he should be being held accountable to the voters. And like I said before, 45 million of us are experiencing these issues, and we also vote. Yeah, um, yeah. hopefully uh, he gets the message. It seems like one of the a few things he could do to change some of the dynamics around the, the midterm elections and, and potentially very low Democratic voter turnout. And, uh, you know, it seems like he's afraid that he's going to get uh, criticized by people who say, well, I paid my student loans back. You know, why are you letting these other people off the hook? But, uh, I, I mean, I think about that. I'm like, well, if, you know, if, if somebody's suffering from cancer, uh, are we not supposed to uh, try to develop a cure because other people died of cancer? I mean. Right. I mean, that's our culture of rugged individualism. If I could do it, it means that you should too. Um, you know, it's, it's that we have found a better way. <laughs> Um, and we also haven't talked about how inflated tuition is and how there are private colleges and universities that are also preying on people. There is, it's just not the way it used to be. You used to be able to pay your tuition with a summer job. Um, and it's just, it's not that way anymore. Right. And, um, so, uh, I guess two last questions. Uh, one, since you're a native of Buffalo with, with the conversation we just had with Senator Ramos, uh, any thoughts on the $600 million um, being spent on a, the football stadium instead of maybe uh, helping CUNY and SUNY students? And, and then what can people do to get involved with this campaign to, to end student debt? Yeah, um, I am a lifelong Buffalonian, lifelong Bills fan, and I believe that spending $650 million in New York State taxpayer money to subsidize a stadium for billionaires who don't even pay into the same system they're benefiting off of is um, a miscarriage of justice. Um, SUNY and CUNY students could use it. We need affordable housing across the state. Um, There are so many more investments that can be made, especially with the knowledge that we know stadiums don't bring any real economic benefit to the region. Um, That's the first thing. Um, and if folks want to get involved, they can visit withoutstudentdebt.org. 
Um, they can sign the petition. They can stay abreast on direct actions that happen often in collaboration with many other members of a broad coalition who are calling for student debt cancellation. And they can share, they can share their own stories of how student debt has impacted their lives. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But India Walton uh, from Roots Action leading campaign uh, without student debt. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI radio. Thanks a lot. Have a great evening. You too. All right. We'll be back after this short break and we're going to talk with uh, housing justice activists from uh, Ridgewood all the way to Barcelona. Two. That was I Can't Stand It by the Velvet Underground. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and online at WBAI.org. I'm Amba Gargarian here with my co-host, John Tarleton. Now, turning to our third segment, at the end of March, Mayor Eric Adams announced he'd have all of the city's homeless tent encampments evicted by April 1st. While he didn't meet his deadline, he's still fulfilling his promise, sending the NYPD to clear essentially all tent encampments in the five boroughs. These traumatic sweeps leave houseless people without their belongings or a place to stay. Some have been offered beds and shelters, but many are outspoken about how punitive and cramped the shelter system is. Tenant unions, mutual aid groups, anarchists, and houseless communities themselves have been fighting against the sweeps, but there's often little to be done. During a sweep of an encampment on 9th Street and Avenue B in the East Village on Thursday, a homeless activist named Ramza was arrested after refusing to leave his tent. We're going to go here to a clip of him speaking at a protest in Tompkins Square Park the next day. This is just last Friday. Shelters and safe havens are abusive and toxic environments. Right. Um, how do you expect people to uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. with mental health issues and substance abuse issues to get help in an abusive environment? Sorry, All right, they spend $3,500 a month per person in the shelter. They spend $3,500 a month per person in the shelter. All right, and those places are, are terrible. The, um, the, uh, they're like, as it says here, there are more vacant units in New York City than there are homeless people in the state. Total All right. If they're, if, if they're looking for apartment for us, they don't have to look too hard because they have 250,000 options, okay? <laughs> the mayor's a politician. All right. He's not going to do the right thing. It's a thing. All right. So we have to organize and um, build community and uh, mutual aid networks and everything, man. Organize. So that was Rob of Anarchy Row, which has now been relocated just around the corner. Um, 
fearing eviction looms uh, on Friday. But then on Saturday morning, an encampment at Myrtle and Wyckoff Avenues in Bushwick was evicted, and tenant organizer and founder of the Ridgewood Tenants Union, Raquel Namuk, was arrested trying to protect that encampment and her houseless neighbors. And she joins us now to speak more about that. Raquel, welcome. Welcome to WBAI. Hi, Amba. How are you? I'm okay. Great. Great to have you here. So let's go straight into it. Uh, break down what happened, uh, what was going on, what you were trying to protect and why you were arrested. Um, I think it was a unwarranted arrest, um, very needless, but we were trying to protect the belongings of these homeless individuals that stay at this encampment on Myrtle Avenue between Gates and Wyckoff. And the night before, I had gone to check on them and let them know that DHS had posted a notice for a cleanup the following morning. They hadn't seen the notice. Um, the notice was actually posted a half a block away from their encampment, nowhere for them to see, with no date, uh, sorry, with no time. And so they didn't know what was happening. We went to tell them. I asked them, you know, what kind of support will you need the following morning? Do you want us to make a public call? Do you want more bodies? Um, and what they wanted us to do is to help them get into safe shelters um, and to get them supplies that they needed that might be discarded um, in the morning. And so that's exactly what we did. But the following morning at 10 a.m. when the cops came and sanitation came, um, I noticed that um, there was some property left unattended. And I was assuming that it was belonging to Charlie, who's a homeless individual um, that also stays at that encampment, but is currently in the hospital. And so all I wanted to do is figure out if uh, a bag and a notebook that was in a shopping cart that sanitation was wheeling away. I wanted to see if that was something important, if there was documentation inside, ID, you know, valuable items that, you know, homeless folks don't have a chance to store anywhere safe. And so just by me doing that, the police um, thought I was interfering with the sweep, right? And they pulled me away after I was asking them just for a few minutes to look through the through this individual's belongings. Uh, for this, I was arrested. Um, it's really outrageous. I None of us expected this to happen this past Saturday. I'm still very shocked. I think we're all very shocked. But I think this is the new, uh, or maybe not the new New York, but this is like the uh, current mayor's swift hand, right? Him flexing his muscles um, and really disregarding the lives of our homeless brothers and sisters. Quickly, Raquel, and then we're going to bring in our other guests, um, some some fellow housing as activists from Spain. But quickly, what what happens after the sweep? I mean, we hear some people are maybe being offered shelters that they don't want, but what's been going on? I mean, their stuff's gone. What are they? Yeah, so several of the men were offered various placements, uh, some in the Bronx, some in Long Island City. Um, and I, a couple of them actually took those placements. We're not really sure what will happen afterwards. Um, most individuals, as you all probably know, don't want to go into unsafe shelters, which is why they're in the streets, right? Folks decide to stay in the streets because it's a safe sanctuary for them that they call home. And for the city to be tearing, away, tearing up these homes, uh, you know, 
taking people's property is uncalled for, it's careless, and it's also illegal. Um, but what I learned is that after I was arrested, Jojo, one of the individuals that stays at this encampment, he later came and this is what he told me. They took all my stuff. Uh, not me, but another um, member of a group, they were told by Jojo, they took all my stuff and threw it away. Now I don't have anything to live on, no clothes, no socks. They took everything. It's not fair for us. It's fucked up. And so, you know, people are left traumatized. People are left without their pertinent belongings. And this is really, I think we should all really be disgusted and we should all be fighting for this to stop once and for all. You know, the solution is in the word homeless. It's homes, right? That's what we need. And the city has enough vacant property to be able to house all homeless individuals in the streets, in the shelters right away. But they are not using the most common sense solution at their disposal. Right. And uh, just a reminder, uh, we're on uh, live broadcast radio, so no uh, F-bombs or other curse words, please. Uh, but uh, we're also excited uh, to have with us uh, two uh, uh, housing activists from uh, Barcelona, Spain, who are in uh, New York this week. Uh, we have uh, Joao Frank, uh, Franca, who's actually uh, a journalist and author who has covered uh, the the PA, uh, P-A-H, which is a a radical uh, housing justice movement that uh, sprang up in Spain in 2009 after the financial crash and uh, terrible uh, troubles people went through, and also joined uh, by Santi, who's a longtime organizer with PA. They're going to be speaking at 6.30 at the Mayday space over in, in Bushwick, uh, just to hop over from Ridgewood. Uh, Raquel, I understand you plan to be there. Um, certainly encourage anybody who's in the area who can make it over to Mayday space. Uh, this will be a very good talk. Uh, Joao uh, and Santi, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, and uh, sorry our discussions could be a little bit more abbreviated, but uh, for starters, uh, Joao, can can you uh, summarize the the history of, of PA, uh, how it got started, and what it's been able to accomplish? Mm-hmm. So uh, PA is a movement that started in 2009 in Barcelona, uh, to respond to the, the housing crisis uh, tied to the mortgage crisis, uh, tra- tied to the 2008-2009 uh, financial crash. And people uh, started losing their houses in Spain uh, because the government had always say said uh, people should buy a house to access their right to housing. And you had very bad conditions for for renting, but when the the system crashed, uh, people could not pay for their debts, and the bank was evicting them. And in Spain, uh, when you are evicted, you also keep part of your debt, so it's not enough returning oh. your house. Uh, so you are you have you are carrying the burden of debt when you are trying to find new new solutions, right? So the platform started trying to change this this specific element through changing the law. And a few time after that, they saw they had to start stopping evictions. And that is what they are most known for. And this has been uh, already 13 years. And we had just published this this book. We call it uh, a handbook. Uh, we, pu- we published it with the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. And there we try to summarize uh, the, lesson, the lessons learned by the, the movement in those 13 years. 
to make them useful for anyone who wants to organize around any issue, not only housing, um, and to think a little bit how to 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 make a, a welcoming space and to organize uh, without money. Uh, the platform is free, uh, horizontal, and nonpartisan. So everyone there is is doing voluntary work. And people who arrive there uh, with their housing problem, uh, they get empowered and and start to advise and help other people who arrive after them. Right. right. And tell us a little bit about what what that the positive aspects of the program look like now, thirteen years later. What does it look like? How, you know, what does housing justice look like in Spain? And you're part of it. Uh, well, uh, the housing. How does the housing justice look right now in Spain? Well, I think that uh, clearly there has been improvement uh, uh, since since we started, but uh, there is no guarantee of the right of housing to, to, in Spain, obviously. And I was just uh, listening to the to the previous to to Raquel and the problems and the that you are facing here with the homeless, and and it's uh, pretty much the same situation in the sense that when when we are evicted. We don't have any public housing system in Spain, so families are just thrown directly to the streets with no alternative from the not from the administration. So, and they're also sent to shelters that where obviously families don't want to go. There's are no places to be with their with your children. And so, what we have done, one of the things that also is particular about PIs, and we do civil disobedience specific. And you were talking about all these empty homes that you have in New York. Well, we consider those empty houses in Spain the ones that are in the hands of the banks and the banks have been bailed out by public with public money, that those are public housing. So what we do is with a squat, we just uh, open the doors of those uh, houses from banks and, and vulture funds uh, and we put families to live there. And once they are there, we, we ask for a rent because we want to pay a rent, but we want to pay a rent that is affordable. And this that started like a crazy idea that we implemented. Now it has become a law. So now in yeah. Catalonia, the law... Uh, allows uh, forces, sorry, vulture uh, funds and banks to provide an affordable rent to families because they had their, their homes empty, which was part of the responsibility. If you built a house, it's to have All a right. social... We have, we have 15 seconds. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I could be talking. And then I'm going to leave it here <laughs> and I will invite everyone to come to May Day <laughs> if they want to listen a little bit more about uh, the story of the yeah. park. That's and right. found online, right? Yes, uh, online. Yes. Okay, right. And uh, at Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, for sure, I'm sure they're a great resource. Speaking at Mayday Space at 6.30, uh, hustle over there if you can. You'll, I know you'll be speaking at the New School also on Thursday. Uh, and then you'll continue your tour, I think, to Philadelphia on Saturday. And uh, also just want to let people know that you can find the Ridgewood Tenants Union at ridgewoodtenantsunion.org. They're doing a lot of great work, also fighting the capitalist uh, housing system in their community. And uh, we'll have to leave it there for tonight. Uh, we have to sign off. We'll be back same time next week. Uh, Amba, what's our uh, what's our musical outro tonight? We're um, going to go out with Os Mutantes, an old uh, Brazilian band, Baby, by Os Mutantes. Precisa saber da piscina, da margarina, da carolina, da gasolina, você precisa saber de mim. Baby, 
road. At the previous program was the Independent News Hour, heard Tuesdays at 5 p.m. here on WBAI. New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org online. Just as a programming note, the WBAI Evening News, followed by Extinction Rebellion Radio, will return at their respective...